absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is a problem if you are powerless. We welcome you once again to another edition of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. I'm Ryan Mazzocco. And I'm Ethan Maestri. This week we are going to examine the episode The Prince. Not to be confused with the 80s, 90s pop star. Right. This is not the episode formerly known as The Prince. Correct. This is The Prince. Correct. That was awful. I might cut that. (laughs) But I probably won't. You know, this is a time where we always do our little bit, uh, something that's kind of based off of something we saw on the show. Sure do. And we try to uh, make a little joke out of it to to set up the whole episode. And so this is the part where we do that. Mm, Well, kind of. Yeah. We we had had a little, um, little problem this week. Ethan and I, we... Got all wrapped up in uh, watching American football. Yeah. Uh, we're pretty big fans. Yep. So some of our production time kind of got cut. Some? Yeah. Most yeah, of most it? Most of it. Yeah. yeah. And I blew all the production money on FanDuel. Sorry. <laughs> right. Right. So there went our budget, and there went our time. We squandered everything. Yeah. So uh, I guess instead of going ahead and playing it for him you want to just kind of sum up yeah what it basically was. it was just centered around game of thrones mm-hmm. you know since it there is that tie-in with this episode mm-hmm. you know tacitly that's there so basically for you the listener what we want you to do is just take a moment and think of all of the gratuitous violence and nude scenes from game of thrones and then just somehow put an andromeda spin on it. we'll give you a moment to do that Oh, man, that was, that was fantastic. That was great. This, this is probably our best bit yet. Whoa, man. Yeah. Wow. That's not something you're going to get on every podcast. That's Emmy-winning material right yeah. there. All right. So, The Prince. So, let's go ahead and get right into it, then. Uh, Ethan, you, would you like to lead us off with a little bit of your uh, some fun facts and trivia? Yeah, I got some factoids for okay. us here. Uh, this was an episode written by a freelance writer. He actually isn't part of the main writing staff, but this is a, an episode that he contributed. It was from Eric Olson. And uh, besides uh, the c- contribution from him, we have a number of guest stars that we can also uh, make mention of here. Stephen Graham uh, played Eric, the prince, in this episode. He has had an active, very active career in television and film. This role for him in Andromeda is a very early one in his career, and he would go on to do many TV and film appearances in several uh, sci-fi series. We also have Timothy Weber, who plays Constantine, and he's had a long career since the late 70s. And uh, besides him, we have Dale Wilson as Alexander. He's been active uh, from the early 70s as well, but mainly in voice acting, and we see him... See a lot of credits for him in Dragon Ball Z and in various other uh, animated series uh, throughout the years. Uh, Vince Metcalf plays King Florin, and we see him briefly at the be- at the beginning of the episode. He too is a longstanding actor in film and in television. 
Alan Gray plays Janos. And then we have Kurt Evans as Theodorus. Now, Kurt Evans only appears very briefly. And again, this is kind of early on in his career. He goes on to appear in a lot of sci-fi, including Battlestar Galactica, Stargate SG-1, and the various other series that have been on throughout the last decade and a half or so. Now, the title, The Prince, uh, besides its obvious connotation, is yet again making reference to the literary work The Prince by Machiavelli from the 15th century. Mm -hmm. So we have another reference there uh, to look to. The New Holland capital, where the final battle takes place, those final scenes out of doors, um, that was on the same set that was used for the planet Tolana in the Stargate SG-1 series. So I thought that was an interesting little tie together there. It was filmed at the Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. And Simon Fraser University was often filmed um, on its location there in its courtyards uh, because of the expansive grounds and the architecture of the place. I, I can think of uh, several series, several films in which I've seen um, that same courtyard that we see in this episode of Andromeda, uh, particularly the outdoor scenes um, during uh, the pilot episode for Battlestar Galactica. They were also filmed there at the Simon Fraser University. So that's what I've got for factoids for this episode. All right. Well, I guess let's just uh, go ahead and keep on going then. Uh, you got the recap this week, right? Sure do. Okay. Lay it on us. The Prince. Responding to a distress call, Dylan, Tyr, and Becca board a vessel under attack, but they quickly deduce that the attackers are not the pirates that the distress call indicated that they were. Instead, Dylan and Tyr find a royal family doing its best House of Romanov impression. But before the father and king passes away, he uses his last breath in order to make Dylan and Tyr co-regents of his surviving son, Prince Eric. Safely aboard the Maru, Eric and the only other survivor of the attack, the retainer Janos, who is unconscious and being treated by trance, are being brought to the Andromeda Ascendant. Eric informs them that the ship's slipstream device was sabotaged, he says that the attackers were Archduke Constantine and his men, who rebelled against the king, and he considers them no better than pirates, thus the misunderstanding in the signal. Rami relates the history of New Holland. After the fall of the system's commonwealth, they were attacked by Magog, and the world was in chaos. That was until one of Eric's ancestors declared himself king and united the people by winning a civil war. Eric explains that Archduke Constantine and the five barons control most of the land, so they feel that they are entitled to rulership. They rebelled, and because they took the royal troops by surprise, they quickly were able to overthrow the king. Eric, the third son of the king, never expected to rule. His older brothers were trained for it. His life's ambition seems to have been making the most of an easy life, not preparing for rulership. By Nuhalan law, he must have two co-regents who act as his equals until he is crowned on Nuhalan. With Tyr and Dylan up to speed now on what they're up against, the game of one-upsmanship between the two of them can now begin. Tyr expresses his trademark pessimism at their situation, while Dylan indicates his intent to bring Nuhalan into the fight against the world ship on their side. Soon, though, a ship from Nuhalan arrives and demands that the prince be handed over, likely to be conveniently helped out of an airlock on the way home. The three agree not to hand the prince over, and the pilot of the New Holland ship protests, but is really outmatched by the Andromeda and quickly backs down. On to New Holland. While on the way, though, Tyr instructs Eric in martial arts and other philosophies useful to a bloodthirsty dictator. 
Dylan tries to balance Tyr's influence by stressing the importance of weighing all other options before utilizing the nuclear one. Later, Janos, the retainer, comes too, and, like any good side point to a plot, immediately seeks out Eric and tries to kill him. It seems that the barons got control of him as well. Unable to trust anyone, Eric, in crisis and feeling vulnerable, decides to kill Janos, and then immediately regrets his decision, even expressing to Dylan afterward that Janos was like family. Here's a friendly tip to New Holland's administrators. Don't ever let this kid have a pet. Once in orbit of New Holland, Eric broadcasts a message to the planet stating that he wants peace and that all forces should lay down weapons. The Baron's response, through Constantine, is swift. They are not going to play along. Tyr, aboard the Maru, contacts Constantine and negotiates an alternate arrangement, gaining the Baron's trust. If Tyr can give Constantine the would-be king's head on a platter... Wait, seriously? That's still a thing 3,000 years in the future? Then Constantine will do anything in his power to compensate Tyr. Tyr sets out to form a further complicated intrigue with Eric in order to betray Constantine and the Barons. Tyr and Eric are then summoned to the bridge as the entire New Holland fleet arrives under the command of Admiral Alexander, once loyal to the king, but really this guy just wants some peace and quiet. He agrees to come on board Andromeda to discuss arrangements that will allow Eric to be crowned as king. In the end, Rami, Dylan, Tyr, and Eric go to the surface for the coronation. Dylan has his plan in motion, Tyr has several plans in motion, and, as typical, is working all angles in order to keep his options open until the situation that most benefits Tyr presents itself. As the coronation gets started, the situation that Tyr has been waiting for develops. But, if Tyr is being honest, he'd have to admit that it wasn't the one that he expected. Suspecting that Tyr would hedge his bets, Dylan went with overwhelming force in order to control the situation, sending Planetfall defense robots sending Planetfall defense robots to the surface to take out Constantine's snipers and ensure that the king would live long enough to be coronated. Tyr, seeing which way the wind was blowing, descends on the barons like a Valkyrie and dispatches all of them, Constantine included. Now established as king, Eric promises a diplomatic rule, much to Tyr's disdain, and Dylan informs Tyr that he's not illiterate to the philosophies that Tyr holds in such high esteem. The End Hey, Ethan, I was wondering if you could help me. Okay. Um, I'm writing a story right now, mm-hmm. and basically what it is, it's a far-off planet, some alien world um, full of uh, you know, a humanoid alien race, um, completely different than any sort of human society. Well, not completely. They're, they're going to have basically sort of a, um, you know, a monarch type of a government. Um, the, the thing I'm, I'm having a hard time with, though, is I don't know exactly where to get any of the props and costumes i don't do you have any idea where i could get something that might fit something like that uh yeah actually as a matter of fact okay two words renaissance fair brilliant brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah totally fits for futuristic Mm -hmm. society right yeah okay no good point though (laughs) i'm not gonna let that go (laughs) we're not moving on from that great point in fact (laughs) this whole episode they're wearing um, 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 Renaissance Fair mm-hmm. material, uh, right. uh, costumes. With the exception of while Eric is on the ship, this is part of my observation, so I'll just bring it up now. <laughs> that's, that's fine. It's on mine, too. <laughs> oh, did we have the same one? I don't know. Um, did, did you not notice Eric's thriller jacket? <laughs> 
Come on. Okay. It wasn't red. Yeah. It was blue. Okay. But it was the thriller jacket from the 1980s, Michael Jackson. Wow. That's absolutely, that's what it was. I mean, it even had the, the, the clasp uh. across the neck, too, that was undone, open. <laughs> I kid you not. I've not done the side-by-side comparison, but when I do, mm-hmm. and I will inform you all next week mm-hmm. how that goes, it's the Thriller jacket. Okay. Or maybe somebody out there could uh, go ahead and Photoshop w- that for us. Absolutely. We would appreciate that. Yeah. You can send, send that to uh, drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. Right. And if you didn't hear that, we will mention again at the end of the episode. Um, yeah, my note on this was that uh, it's sort of sarcastic, but Eric isn't really dressed like a king. No, he's not. No, no, he, he's, he's more like a you know a, a ninja rider, <laughs> a bicycle, you know, the motorcycle, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, because we've seen what their royalty dresses like, and that's not it. No, yeah, no. Well, I guess that's what they have to wear when they're relaxing. Because when you're wearing that much material mm-hmm. in formal occasions, I guess that would be annoying. Well, I mean, are those clothes that are on the ship? Would he have had Good time question. to go back home? <laughs> yeah, the reactor is going to rupture. Yeah, hold on. on. Let me grab my luggage. Hold on. I can't leave without my thriller jacket. <laughs> That's probably Harper's thriller jacket. <laughs> it probably is. You're, He's you're like, you know what? He's right. not in this episode. You can wear his clothes. Wear his clothes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that's brilliant. Uh, so, so let's let's just pick on on the clothing a little bit more. Eric's ancestor. You know, we had the the image there that Rami puts up on screen. Mm-hmm. But did that image not look more like Jack Black dressed in a king's costume at an outdoor Halloween party? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the lighting, the 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 attire, the guy's look. I mean, that's that's what I saw. Is Jack Black maybe uncredited on IMDb? I I, I looked at the episode on IMDb. I did not see his name uncredited though. Hmm. Okay. Well, maybe he's trying to distance himself. Yeah. You know, we've joked before. Um, actually, the tagline, I think, of the show, just about, uh, you coined it, I think, right off the bat, the Maru is one but ugly ship. Yes. Um, is it just me, or is it getting worse? It's getting worse. I noticed that last week, and I didn't bring it up. But we see it again there in the hangar bay of the Andromeda, and it just looks awful. What I've noticed, if we're thinking of the same part, Tyr and Eric are both talking on the Maru. So we get kind of this extended shot back and forth between the two of them, and we see a lot of the Maru around them in the, I think it's the engineering section. And there's a lot of just circuits, you know, exposed circuit boards, wires just strung <laughs> haphazardly here and there. If OSHA showed up on this ship, mm. it, it would be fine. Yeah. It would be impounded. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is get, getting worse. I, I think you're absolutely right. And you're speaking about the interior. Yes. And I'm thinking about the exterior. Have, okay, you seen, well, have you seen the exterior shots? I didn't pay as much attention to the exterior. And we've no. joked before about it being a rust bucket. Yes. And we've joked before about how does something how get does... rusty in space. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's looking awful. It's getting worse. Huh? You know what the problem might be? This just dawned on me. I think I just solved it. Uh, before Andromeda, Becca was flying around in the Maru all the time. Yes. Now it spends most of the time in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> right. On blocks. <laughs> yeah. Unless somebody needs it for a, a highly risky mission that will. They will probably or, lose the Maru. Or to conspire with the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. It's just there for anybody. 
Yeah, I think that's the problem. Okay. It's just sitting there getting rusty. There you go. Mm-hmm. Must be a high humidity level in the in the Andromeda. Well, I'm sure the the vacuum of space probably it just sucks it out through the hull. I mean, space is a pretty dry environment. I'm guessing. I've never been there. Right. Uh, going back to uh, costumes, but not so much tongue tongue in cheek for this one. I actually had an observation about the one of the props that were used, and I wonder if you noticed it. If you might be able to help me reason through this just a little bit. Okay. Uh, with Janos. He was in there just very briefly, but the medical outfit that he was wearing once he was back on board Andromeda looked like it had a bag with a tube, like running around the, the, his side underneath his shoulder or something to, the, to that effect. Okay. It caught my attention because it looked to me like there was actually fluid in it. And I'm wondering, do they have some sort of a medical gown with an integrated IV? Because if they do, that actually seems like a cool concept. You know, I'm not really sure what that is. Um, I actually didn't notice it. So you mentioned it. I went ahead and, and brought it up. Yeah, uh, we, yeah. We took a little pause. And uh, yeah, I, I guess that that's, it was just like a little, little circle bag yeah. with some sort of blue fluid in it and mm-hmm. a couple of lines running up over his shoulder. Yeah. Um. I, I, I think medically this this could be something interesting. Okay. You know, instead of having the IV on a on a pole that you have to drag around with you when you mm-hmm. go to the bathroom because they want you to go to the bathroom all the time once mm-hmm. you're done with the surgery or whatever. Yeah, just sew it into the gown and ha- you know have it in there. Right. And it's really convenient if you have to do jujitsu style knife fighting. Right. Um, yeah. To to kill your your would be king. Mm-hmm. So. It, Medical staff, get on that right. research or whatever, whoever designs medical clothing. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be sewed into it. It could just be no. Velcro or something. Or well, maybe, maybe snaps. Yeah. You know? S- snaps. They, they do have a lot of throwback to 80s stuff on here, so maybe it snaps. <laughs> there you go. Because you would need to be able to, otherwise you're going to have to, every time you need a different med in your IV, you have to change your gown. You have to change your gown. You're yeah. Right. Yeah, so, that, that could be a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Some drawbacks there. Right. But there's ways around it. Yeah, probably. They'll figure it out in 3,000 years. I'm sure. You know, it's interesting that that same scene, actually the scene that was just immediately before that, when uh, when he wakes up and he's telling Trance, I have to talk to Eric. And she's saying, no, you need to just lay down. Yeah. I have to talk to Eric. Well, next thing you know, he's going to see Eric. I'm wondering, why didn't Trance say, okay, I'll go get him? <laughs> right. You know, why did she fold and what? just be like, okay, you, I've I've ordered you doctor's orders or acting doctor's orders to stay here in your bed, but you really need to talk to him. So obviously the only way for this to work is you have to get out of your bed and go find him. Well, we understand Trance sees the future. Maybe this was just a bad day for Trance. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's like, okay, this guy gets up and goes and finds him. He, okay, he's going to kill... Yeah, you know what? You've been a jerk. I've cleaned your bedpan out four times. <laughs> you have never said thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, go find Eric. Okay. All right. So, basically, Trance killed him. <laughs> Essentially. All right. Yeah, there so, you go. Right. Um, I guess maybe pin that for later. What did we learn about Trance this episode? <laughs> Tr- Tr- Trance killed a dude. <laughs> Without killing Without him. Without killing him. That, that's an amazing talent. <laughs> It is. That could be useful. So, 
back to Yanos again. Uh, Dylan checks Yanos, and and you see the moment. And, and I, I will say this for for the the character uh, Yanos, and more specifically for Alan Gray who played him. Um, all seriousness, he, it was a very well acted moment when he's dying. He's like that. He's staring at Eric, and you could almost. I don't know how an actor does this. You can almost see the moment where the life leaves the eyes. Oh, yeah. I thought definitely. that was actually yeah. pretty well done, actually. Yeah, for... I agree. I completely agree. But then, does Dylan... But then, does Dylan really have to announce to the boy, you've killed him? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would have been a far better scene if they had just cut away right. to, to, to Eric having his heart-to-heart with Dylan afterward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, even if he doesn't say it, can he just give him a look? Like, you the kn- look says, look what you did. You know what trance lets you do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because we see it all the time in acting, even in Andromeda. They can say so much with just a look. Yes. Trance does it all the time. Yeah. She's great at it. Maybe Dylan doesn't know how to do that. So he's like, maybe he gave him the look, but then Eric didn't get it. And you know, so he's just standing there looking at him. That is one of the things about the show. And I'm probably getting a little out of character with our observations in going into this. But this is one of the things about this TV show that I like and that makes me grit my teeth at the same time. Okay. It doesn't take itself too seriously. But there are moments that are really well done. And like I said, this was a moment where this guest star, Alan Gray, he has a great moment here. And... and it would have been awesome if the director had just said, you know what, that's good enough. Let's just stop right there, and we'll cut to the next scene. But no, you have to get Kevin Sorbo's line in there. And it just took, it just took me out of the moment mm-hmm. that I was already having. I was sucked in. I was, in, you know, I was enjoying the scene, not the death, but, you know, the, the acting that was being done in the scene. And the, I enjoyed the, the acting of the death. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But the, the, the extra line just seemed gratuitous mm-hmm. and over the top, and I was just like, Okay, you know, mm-hmm. and though I find myself having moments like that with this show mm-hmm. it, that are both enjoyable and something to laugh at, but at the same time, it's just like, oh, you know, if they if they'd have gone for a little bit less, it would have been so much better. You know, Tyr has such a hard time addressing him as Captain Hunt. Yes, he could have just been like, "Thanks, Captain Obvious." <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're already over the top. Just take it that next step further. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, some a very big return of some special guests. Uh, we haven't seen them in a while. The return of Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yes. Yeah. Was it just me, or did they look awful? Let's talk about the graphics. I'm, I'm sorry. Was that too mean? Nope. I, th- I think that was right on. Okay, because I know on. you are always so hard on all of the special effects. Yes. And I let so much more stuff go than, than you are willing to. Right, right. It, let me preface as we get into this discussion. Okay. Let me just preface right. this by saying we have seen them mm-hmm. in interior shots in the ship. Mm-hmm. We've seen them in exterior shots on the ship. Mm-hmm. And they're not the best. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll grant you that. But I come out of an era where I watched Babylon 5, so I let a lot of things go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. For the sake of advancing a story, and especially one on as little budget as what we understand them to have had, you know, I have 
we've left it alone Mm -hmm. for the most part. We've tipped our hat a time or two, not really said anything. This scene with them on the surface of the planet was just awful. Yeah. I mean, you've got a real-life environment. There were, what, a couple of trees in the background. And you've got the Tweedledee and Tweedledum standing right in front of them. And, you know, I understand they can't probably hire the best designers to do it. But, wow, you you could have spent your money, the same amount of money, and gotten something better somewhere else, I would imagine. Right. Maybe they could have made some models and some animatronics like Robert Hewitt Wolf always wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. Stop motion. What is it? Stop motion. I think would have might have worked a little bit better in this case. But the CG, oh, oh, yeah. When they come out with the remastered Blu-ray versions Mm -hmm. of Andromeda, I can't wait to see what they do to you know spruce up the graphics. Okay, I bet they'll get on that real quick. Right on it. There's such a high demand. Um, you mentioned the exterior shot. I kind of wanted to mention that too because. Uh, where did you say that was filmed? The the exterior oh, where the the coronation the, the assets, uh, Burnby Mountain, British Columbia, uh, Simon Fraser University. Okay, okay. Because what I was thinking the whole time I was watching this was, it looks like they set up a Renaissance fair outside of my junior high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of old and new kind of mixed all together. Yes. The architecture is definitely unique uh-huh. and, and definitely reeks of that educational center, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. <laughs> but the Renaissance Fair stuff. I mean, they even had the guards standing with the, with the staffs, with the little flags, all the tents and everything. Yeah. It was, I, you have expected to see knights and lancers and stuff like that, too. Right. I I am what not lancers lances. <laughs> you half expected to see knights and lances right. or something. Lancers like that. were on the ship. Yeah, uh, you're right. So Eric's on the observation deck, um, enjoying the view. Nice view of um, Holland there, and it's two moons. But Rami walks up behind him and says, "Dylan would like to, to speak with you. Would like to see you." Eric's response is about what? Um. Just a guess. It's probably about rulership stuff. <laughs> Here again was another line that I thought, did he really have to say that? No, mm-hmm. he didn't have to say that. Why would Dylan want to see him? You understand there's a crisis going on. It's probably in regard to that. What could there possibly be to talk about? <laughs> well, he is 17. Okay. There's probably a number of things going through his head. But honestly, he, come on. He could have turned around and said, not right now, mm-hmm. or anything else <laughs> to set up the conversation that he and Rami are about to have. Right. About the thing that Dylan probably wants to speak to nice him about. Nice spoiler, Rami. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. Okay, now when Dylan tells you all of this, act surprised. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, so anyway, yeah, there again, another one of those gratuitous lines that I think would have been better left unsaid rather than than in this episode. This is kind of a thing, it's a little bit of a silly thing, but it's also kind of a little bit of a serious thing, because it kind of has to do with a little bit of uh, the way Nietzscheans are able to perceive things better than the average human. When Dylan and Tyr uh, go in to find, when they first find Eric and the rest of his slain family, or almost dead, mostly dead family, um... Nice reference. I like that. Tyr 
he goes over to to Yanos first, and he says, "This one's still alive." Mm-hmm. Paraphrasing, "This one's still alive. The rest of them are dead." Yeah. Yanos was the first one that he went to. He didn't check anybody else. Right. He just goes straight to Yanos. This one's still alive. The rest of them are dead. So, I mean, does he have, in his eyes, he's able to detect um, um, heart rate. We know that, at least when someone is lying, right? So, was he able to just walk in and just scan the room? No pulse, no pulse, no pulse, no pulse. Well, maybe there's a little bit over there. I'll go check him. Yeah. It does make perfect sense Mm -hmm. that Tiro would be able to walk into a room full of dead or mostly dead people mm-hmm. and be able to assess which one may possibly still be alive. Right. He was, who's the least most the least <laughs> dead, most dead. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of gets complicated. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, he, of all people, he would be the one to be able to walk up to the guy that's still alive and make that assessment. Okay. No, it makes perfect sense. Okay, fine. I'll buy it. We, we have a precedent, so. Yeah. And so there's really a lot to talk about in, what we've learned about our characters. And I just want to start this off. It's going to sound tongue-in-cheek. It's going to sound like an observation. But it really is just kind of my take on this episode. I feel like we just watched an elaborate chess game. And Tyr lost. Was it chess or was it Go? Go, Mm -hmm. chess, Othello, whatever game you want to play that involves a little bit of strategery, to coin a phrase. Okay. I didn't coin that phrase. No. no. <laughs> That's been used from a, a, yeah. a very public platform before. <laughs> in, in any case. Um, but yeah, it, using chess as the analogy, I mm-hmm. feel like we just watched Dylan and Tyr play a very elaborate chess game. A- and um, Tyr got his rear end handed to him, I feel like. Is, is, that how, is that how you feel at the end of this episode? Okay. That's one of the things I thought we might discuss because I'm really not sure if Tyr did get his handed to him or if they were playing on the same team the whole time. Did Dylan put Tyr up to uh, making these negotiations with uh, with Constantine? Hmm. Did, did Dylan know about this the whole time? I kind of think, during the episode, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking maybe Dylan knows about it. But then when it wraps up at the end, and and, and Eric says, or which, who who was it, Rami or Eric? One of them says, you know, what are you doing? And he's just like, making plans like everybody else. Um, That kind of makes it seem like maybe he knew what Tyr was up to, but wasn't necessarily in on it. That's my assessment. Okay. okay. I, I don't think at any point the two of them put their heads together and said, uh, you play bad cop, I'm going to play good cop. Yeah. And we'll work this thing to, you know, we'll work toward each other. Well, really, what is the purpose of doing that and keeping it from Eric? Right. Other yeah. than Eric possibly being the stand-in for us. Right. Right. No, I, I very much viewed this episode as being, Tyr was being very authentic and teaching a very... Dour, very Nietzschean philosophy, mm-hmm. and not Nietzschean, but like he mentioned, Sun Tzu and Machiavelli, and what was the, there was a third one he mentioned there, and I can't remember what the it was only there. one I remember was Machiavelli. So you you got one up on me, <laughs> okay? So anyway, so he mentions all of these literary words mm-hmm. 
that you know, are very pragmatic mm-hmm. in their outlook and, and how to think about your opponent that you're warring against. And that's very much where Tyr comes from. So, of course, that's what he's going to teach to this, this young, young prince, would-be king. Dylan, though, understands that that's where Tyr is coming from. And so I think everything that Dylan does is under the assumption that Tyr is not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Tyr is going to do what Tyr does best, and that is what benefits Tyr. So then, really, is Dylan kind of taking a page out of Tyr's book? Oh, absolutely. Because that's what he's doing. Absolutely. He's, he's making it appear as if he trusts Tyr, as he trusts everybody that's involved that he's dealing with, but he has his own plans, too. He's got his own backup plans. Yes. And that's exactly what Tyr was trying to teach Eric. Make me think you trust me. Make Dylan think you trust him. But if all else fails, you've got to have your own plan. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that's basically what both of them are doing. Yes, and that is that segues right into the next point that I wanted to take off here in our discussion. And that is that Dylan and Tyr, they both subscribe to the same philosophy. And that is, in this episode, gunboat diplomacy. Okay. Big stick ideology. Mm-hmm. And I took those from the Andromeda Wiki, but it you know it just put words in my mouth for what I was already thinking okay. as I'm watching this episode. I mean, absolutely, they are. They they claim to have two opposing views. Okay. But that's not really the case in this particular episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that also leads into something else that I was thinking about in reviewing this episode is kind of the fundamental difference in how things are done in this universe with Dylan Hunt trying to reestablish the Commonwealth versus what we see in a series like Star Trek. And and here we go. We're going to, we're going to draw parallels here. Oh, we get to talk about Star Trek. We get to talk about Star Trek. I'm in. (laughs) Whoa, you weren't in this before. Oh, well I'm all in now. Okay. All right. So Star Trek, when you want to go and get a, another planet out there on your side, what do they do? Well, they send an ambassador, right? Mm-hmm. That's usually how things are done. They sit down at a table and they negotiate a settlement that's mutually beneficial, right? Yep. That's usually how it's portrayed in Star Trek. But that's not what happens here. Uh, what happens instead is Dylan shows up with his big ship and it actually at times enjoys holding the big stick and forcing others to see things his way. Yeah, he totally did that. He totally enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Tyr is doing also? He, he's, he's being subtle at times. He's being coercive and a bit underhanded. But really, isn't it the same philosophy for both of them? Yeah, I think it's just a difference in the attitude in which they go about it. Because Dylan, this is the strategy that Tyr, that Tyr is going to use right off the bat. Whereas Dylan, he's going to try to use uh, diplomacy... Negotiation. I mean, he he says that. That's what he teaches Eric. Yeah. You know, basically to to sum up what he's telling Eric, the way that Tyr is teaching you, that's okay as a last resort. But you got to try these other things first. And maybe maybe Dylan was just in a position where he knew that those other things weren't going to work, or what he did try, he could see that it wasn't going to work when he brought uh, Admiral Alexander from the the, fl- the fleet 
commander. Yeah. Or, uh, okay. He brings him onto the the Andromeda. The purpose is they're saying he's going to try to uh, to swing him over to their side, right? That's mm-hmm. what Eric thinks. Yeah. Um, that's what Eric hopes, and maybe Dylan hopes that too. Yeah. But I mean, th- he walks away from that table saying, "Yeah, it's not going to happen." True. So instead, we got to show our big guns. We got to flex our muscles. Yeah. And so then that's what they do. But here is here is where I have kind of a problem. And, and at this point, this is where I would say, this is where the Star Trek universe is so much better than the Andromeda universe. I, I'm not going to do that. Because really, this is like... Okay, I hate it when people that are Star Trek fans or Star Wars fans start drawing parallels between the two universes, mm-hmm. saying one's better than the other. And, and I understand why they do it. And I, I so want to do that right now with okay. Andromeda versus Star Trek. But I'm not going to do that. Okay. What I am going to say is that Dylan is trying to reestablish the Commonwealth and, and hold himself and the Commonwealth to a higher standard, right? Yeah. Tyr is kind of the antitype to that, correct? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But in this episode, I feel like Dylan is stooping to Tyr's level. Because he's working off the same assumptions that Tyr is working off of. Tyr says it at one point. He says that you have to assume that the other players are are, are not going to play by the rules. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Dylan has done here. He assumes that Tyr is not going to play by the rules. Well, I mean, that's just simple observation. <laughs> I, I know, mean, I know, but at the same... <sighs> if Dylan has watched the last season and a half, he knows... That Tyr doesn't play by the rules. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And that's that's kind of my my quandary with, with this episode and with what is going on between Tyr and Dylan. Or is it is it a matter of Dylan being perceptive enough where Tyr just jumps and assumes? Okay, he's the one that just makes the assumptions. Whereas Dylan, maybe he's more perceptive... And he can tell whether someone is 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 talking straight with him or not, and so then he's able to make that decision based on his interaction. It, you know, it's not like he's just he's just jumping straight to to what Tears doing. Yeah. He tries his way first. Yeah. Okay. I guess my problem is is the fact how it all plays out in the end. Mm-hmm. Dylan drops the hammer before Tyr can really get his plans in motion. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no. Tyr has his plans in motion. Dylan just drops the hammer and ruins all of it mm-hmm. for both Constantine and for Tyr. Right. So we don't really know how Tyr was going to let all of that play out in what he set into motion with the sniper and the killing Eric and possibly killing Dylan, right? Mm-hmm. We don't get to see any of that. Dylan doesn't go to Tyr, though. And say, hey, look, why don't you work with me? You know, yeah, we we see things differently, but we're working toward the same goal. Why don't you work with me? Here's what my plan is. Mm -hmm. No, Dylan just acts. And he acts assuming that Tyr is going to, you know, go to the worst common denominator, Mm -hmm. basically. And and I don't know, I kind of have... Well, he sees Tyr walking away, walking to the other yeah. side. 
Yeah. And that was also one of those points when I'm watching this that I'm wondering if Dylan knows where he's going because Tyr has already told him where he's going. Or is he just assuming? Mm-hmm. Well, Tyr's off doing his own thing. Right. And and from my perspective in watching this episode, I feel like this is Dylan just making assumptions that Tyr is going to do what Tyr does. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it's, well, I I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I'm saying, is I don't like it if that's the case, if Dylan is just assuming that Tyr is out for his own good. And, that, and, and now Dylan is having to respond based on that. But you know what? Really, that's the whole point of any of their interactions together, isn't it? Yeah. Dylan has to adjust his plan based on what Tyr feels like doing mm-hmm. in any given situation. I don't like it. But I'm watching it, and I <laughs> like it anyway. <laughs> and I kind of like it. <laughs> you know, part of me also that that makes me question what Tyr really was doing in this whole thing is, okay, what is his, what is his supposedly, according to this episode, what is his endgame for his plan? What's he going to get out of this? Well, Constantine makes the offer to give him Andromeda. Right. He's going to kill Dylan and give him the Andromeda. Yes. Is it that easy to just take over a Commonwealth vessel? Is Rami not going to have anything to say about that? Yeah, that's a valid point. And, I mean, don't you think that Tyr would know that? Yeah. You can't just walk in and say, okay, this is my house now. Right. Right. It... it Here's the problem I have with this episode. Okay. We don't have Becca. Mm-hmm. We don't have Harper. We have Becca briefly. For very, yeah. But she's not there to temper either side, really. Mm-hmm. A- and I feel like this episode would have been complete had all the players been there, all the main players. If they had been on board and been part of it, this could have been a better episode. And now I'm tipping my hat into whether I like it or not. And I, I, I'm, I apologize for, for jumping ahead like that. But I feel like with Becca or with Harper there to act out with the main players and to offer, you know, kind of the, the devil or the angel on the shoulder, you know, the, mm-hmm. the sense of conscience, we would have had a better idea of what the two of them, Dylan and Tyr, I'm speaking of, we would have had a, a better grasp on what they were thinking mm-hmm. and, and what they were planning. The note that I have written down here for this whole thing is, uh, I have in quotes, the winning side. Yes. Because that's what Tyr says. When Constantine tells him, you picked the right side, he says, I picked the winning side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, of course, in the moment, you assume, or at least Constantine did, you assume that he's saying, that's right, I picked your side because you're going to win. But really, he hasn't picked a side yet. And that is just so typical here. Yeah. It's what he always does. We should have seen this coming. And evidently Dylan saw it coming. He's, he's going to pick the winning side. So, or at least the winning side for him, whatever, whichever side is going to benefit him more. And I guess really in most cases the side that would benefit him more will be the side that doesn't end up killing him. <laughs> right. Yeah, but you know, again, it's just another one of those things of him playing all the sides, or 
was he really playing all of the sides? Was he really on Dylan's side the whole time, but doing it in in his own sort of sneaky well, way? you know, I, I think the precedent has already been set in this season. Mm-hmm. Is that Dylan and Tyr do not trust one another. Right. They have a common goal of defeating the world ship. Dylan, because it's a threat to the re- recently reestablished Commonwealth. Yeah. Tyr, for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't trust one another. Right. And so I think you have to take that that we've already seen and apply it to this episode. And I think you have to work under the assumption that you know, they're just operating independent of each other. Yeah. Toward kind of a vague, quasi similar goal. I but the but the question that I'm having though with this with this statement, he picked the winning side. Is he saying that he's still waiting to see which side he's going to end up on, or did he from the beginning know that Dylan was going to be the winning side, and so he had decided to side with Dylan being the winning side? But he said he said it kind of. He, but the way he said that to Constantine by saying, I picked the winning side, to kind of be truthful and honest, but but not. Yeah. Not that, you know, he needs to be truthful yeah. and honest, but it's just kind of his, his sneaky way of... I, I, and I would say that's, a, that's one way of looking at it, mm-hmm. uh, the, way, the way you're describing there, is that Tyr all along knows he's going to be standing next to Dylan. Right. Regardless of what happens. And so, yeah, whatever he, he has to say to Constantine to keep him appeased and draw him out or whatever the case is, yeah, that's what Dylan – or that's what Tyr is going to do. But at the same time, I I almost – I feel like Tyr is so good at keeping his options open and mm-hmm. remaining fluid in any situation that at, at, the, at the drop of a hat, he could turn and betray Dylan without thinking about it. You know, and I feel like that's that's one of the drawbacks, and it's also one of the great things about this show, is that at any moment one of your main characters uh, could be standing beside, or could just turn around and put a knife in the back of mm-hmm. your main character. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's frustrating, but it's enjoyable to watch at the same time. Speaking of knife, uh, Eric, he's a pretty quick learner. With his knife skills. Yes, he is. Either that or Yanos isn't very good. Probably a little bit of both, Okay, I would say. yeah. Uh, one thing, I don't know if this really merits any discussion, but I feel that it, it needs to be mentioned. Um, you know, th- th- there was a whole lot of uh, political talk and procedure and diplomacy and stuff that, that went on in this, and I, and I was very bored with all of that. But, <laughs> um, but one thing that comes out of all this is the reason they are trying so hard to fix this world is because it is a a major nexus point in the slipstream. And so they believe that by having a foot here on this planet with the Commonwealth, then uh, that's a big step for when the Magog invade. Uh, Because pretty much they figure that this is the first place they're going to come through. they're going to come in on. Yeah. Yeah. Which, considering what we know about, or don't know about slipspace... Seems presumptuous on Dylan's part, mm-hmm. maybe to to make that assessment. Right. Well, I mean, the assumption, though. I mean, I, I don't know about this being a a, a major point uh, in a nexus in the slipstream. You're right. That doesn't make sense to me because you're supposed to. Be, but then I guess some paths get bit, <laughs> beaten down more than others, and so they're easier to. I don't know. 
But I do know that that this was one of the very first places that the uh, Magog invaded. True. When they first uh, started invading the the Commonwealth systems. Maybe we're thinking too linear on it. We're, We're thinking about a nexus... Uh, you know, an intersection. Right. In- the Nexus, that's where that's where Captain Kirk is right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah, swinging, chopping wood. Mm-hmm. There you go. But yeah, the, this conjuncture or, or, or this crossroads, whatever it is, we're thinking of it literally as paths that intersect there. But the way Slipstream works, maybe that's not necessarily it. Maybe it's just that it's a place that's easy, more easily accessible. Mm-hmm. I guess we have to think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking to get into the galaxy, this isn't – this is a – an easement, uh, an right. easy way of getting into it. So maybe your less experienced, dumb pilots, mm-hmm. it's a little easier for them to come, come popping out right there. Right. right. <laughs> so anyway, but the point of it being there is a, a reason why they're working so right. hard to fix this planet right. and, uh, and to get the Commonwealth there. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned uh, kind of the political aspect of, of this episode and I wanted to go a little bit further into that because one of the things that Dylan says... Oh, right I was at, trying to avoid that. <laughs> sorry. So right at the end of the episode, uh, Dylan says basically something along the lines of, that's the price uh, in the game of kings. You pay with blood. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was such a great cap to this episode. For all of the Renaissance Fair talk and the <laughs> bad graphics and, and everything that, that you can poke fun at in this episode, I think it does a really good job of highlighting just that point that Dylan brings up is that, uh, and we're, we're da- dancing dangerously close to the, the, the saying <laughs> that we're, we're probably about to talk. You know what? Mm-hmm. Just give us the saying and then all let's right. just wrap all this up together. <clears throat> okay. All right. So the quote for this episode, absolute power corrupts absolutely, which is a problem if you are powerless. From the infamous Drago Museveni. Museveni or Museveni? Muse- Museveni. Museveni, yeah. yeah. We've we'll go with, we'll go with Tears pronunciation. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah. Power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What? Say it again. <laughs> absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Which, in that in and of itself, is, is nothing new. Right, right. The, the power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and to tie that in with what I was talking about just a second ago, with what Dylan says, that 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 is the price that's paid when people play, uh, the as he puts it, the game of kings. Mm-hmm. People die mm-hmm. throughout history. That is all mankind's history, mm-hmm. his recorded history anyway. Is death at, at the hands of of rulers mm-hmm. or people that have tried to rule? Uh, I know this because I've read ancient history. I've read medieval history. I haven't read up through Renaissance time, you know, since we're, we've talked about it already. But I've gotten as far as medieval times, and that literally is how it reads. It's bloodshed right. is all it is. There were no forks in medieval times, therefore there are no forks at medieval times. Way to, like li- a Pepsi. <laughs> Way to lighten it up there with a Cable Guy reference. That's awesome. But, uh, yeah, so I, what Dylan says there is just absolutely spot on. And it, it just really, to me, kind of highlighted the plight of man in his current condition and apparently 3,000 years from now as well. At least on this planet. On this planet, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And wow, just unfortunate that they, they couldn't advance, um, you know, materials for clothing yeah, and fashion. Maybe it's just a royalty thing. We really couldn't see the, the peasants off in the distance there yeah. standing at the feet of Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Right. I mean, they could have been comfortable. You've got the uh, the troops. You know, they're all kind of in like super trooper. Did gear. they not look like the old Cylons from yeah, Battlestar yeah. Galactica yeah, okay. with those helmets? You know, okay, yeah. Uh, that was my thought when uh-huh. I saw that. So yeah, just just bad fashion choices all mm-hmm. around. Apparently, <laughs> uh, at least in the administrative uh, hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the quote. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over we, the place. We with keep this getting trapped on this 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 the Renaissance Fair stuff. Yeah, yeah, we do. Anyway, yeah, but then Drago Museveni goes on to say, uh, after he says, absolute power corrupts absolutely, he says, which is a problem if you are powerless. And I think it's important to remember who this is coming from. This is Drago Museveni, the first Nietzschean. And so what I like to do is is look at this as if T. Renasazi is saying this. Because you know that he would. You know that this is his type of thinking. You know, sure, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that's only a problem if you don't have any power. Right. So you need to do something about it so that this isn't a problem for you. So this isn't a problem for me. Yeah. No, and the saying of all of them that we've seen from Musevni so far, Mm -hmm. I I like this one the best. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it is, it's extremely practical mm-hmm. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, and yeah, Tyr is is working with Eric in order to help him, uh, because this is a philosophy that is that is colored his background mm-hmm. as a Nietzschean, right? And so, yeah, it makes perfect sense. All right, so uh, let's go ahead. Let's break it down. Then uh, the Prince, Ethan, what did you think? Well, to be perfectly honest, um, and I have been okay. all through this episode, so you probably know where I'm going to go with this. Uh, production value, mm-hmm. there were some things that were lacking. Mm-hmm. Costume design, CG graphics. I did like the location. I, I thought that was decent, the way they did that. But, you know, some of those shots were ruined because of the CG. <laughs> you know? So so we had that issue to overcome. Then we had you know some of the things some of the things were well acted as I've talked about before. There were some scenes that were well done. There were also some scenes that kind of took me out of this episode as well. So yeah, ultimately I have to come down on the side of um I didn't like the production value and to be perfectly honest, I didn't care much for the story either. Uh it felt like Shakespeare wrapped in politics told in a sci-fi story okay. and ultimately I I don't like it I like talking about the the differences between Dylan and Tyr mm-hmm. and how they square off against one another and really ultimately that's what this episode is about is the the opposition between the two of them but there's not enough in this episode for me to like the episode uh, for just that reason alone. Okay. There's too much that takes me out of it. So ultimately, I I would never probably go back and watch this episode again. <laughs> okay. I do have one regret. 
I regret that I don't have four hands. I wish I had four hands so I could give this episode four thumbs down. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, basically, for all the reasons that you just said, and then even what you said about Dylan and Tear, and that kind of being the one real redeemable thing about this, is seeing that between Dylan and Tear. Ah, I don't really care because it's the same thing that we've seen in so many episodes before. It's yeah. the same struggle. It's the same fight. It's just more of the same. It's second verse, same as the first. Mm-hmm. Is is really what we got? So yeah, and your the the production value CG was bad. The costume and props were bad. The story I didn't find very interesting, and I knew that this was coming because I've seen this episode before, and I remembered not liking it before. And I've had my mind changed before. Uh, there have been episodes we've covered already that I wasn't crazy about. And then after really after watching it and, and really thinking about it and then discussing it, sometimes I've changed my mind during recording. Yeah. I've, I, I didn't realize... I've seen the expression on your face change as, really? we, as, as yeah. we've talked. Yeah. So, I mean, there have been times I've, I've actually... You've talked me into liking an episode, or I've talked myself into liking an episode. I couldn't do it with this one. Yeah. I cannot wait for this podcast to be over. <laughs> I had... Wow! I had so little notes on this. I don't know if you saw my, my, my page here before... I thought those started. were all your observations. Apparently, that is your talking points I, I well. actually had two talking points written down for this. The rest of this is all just, how. what else can I make fun of? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I guess uh, eh, not my favorite episode. Right. So l- l- let's just take a look back. We've got what ten, eleven, ten episodes now. The in season two. Yeah. Yeah. This is ten. This to me is the weakest one so far. Yeah. Um, we've we've tried to talk about it a few episodes back, but yeah, I think, and I I I'd totally forgotten about this one. But yeah, by far, this is the weakest of the season two episodes that I've seen. I feel like that we've seen so far. Yeah. And, you know, even looking forward, I know that you haven't seen the rest of them, but I, I have this advantage. I can look and sometimes there have been episodes that I love that weren't that great as a standalone episode, but I appreciate how they work into the overall story arc mm-hmm. of Andromeda. And I look at this one and I'm like, there's nothing. Yeah. This has absolutely no redeeming value to me. Uh, there's nothing in this really that uh, the death scene was great. You know that was something that that stuck out to me when 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 Yanos died. I was like that was a fantastic death. Yeah. But that's all it was. This <laughs> this whole it. episode was just one big fantastic death. <laughs> we had so much great Andromeda so far. So to me, this episode is just really a letdown. Is that is that fair? I think so. Okay. Because I'm feeling the same way about it. Okay. Um, I, like you, like you said, I've not watched the series all the way through, and I remember this episode. Mm-hmm. And and as we've come up to it, I, I've procrastinated <laughs> getting prepared for this episode, right? Because I just really wasn't looking forward to seeing it as much because it didn't interest me as as like some of the other ones, and even the you know the couple more that we're going to have beyond that I know about. But. You know, if we're being too hard on it, then uh, if there's something redeeming about this episode that you feel like Brian and I should know about, uh, please, absolutely, let us know. We'd like to hear from you about it. Right. Change our minds, if you can. 
tall order. Yeah. Ethan, how could they get a hold of us if, if they had something they, they felt worth sharing? Well, something tells me if somebody was going to attempt to do that, mm-hmm. it would require an email. Okay. And you could send that email to drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow us uh, both of those places using the handle at AndromedaPod. Our home is on Podbean. We are at www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes. And if you listen to us there, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe. And perhaps give us a review or even some stars. We'd certainly appreciate that. Right. Ethan, you're a big history buff, right? Oh, know, sure. Know a lot about uh, a lot of the different major wars in history. Uh, Love history. American wars. Yeah, you, a bit. You, you, I know you've studied a lot about World War One. Mm-hmm. Do you know much about the American Revolutionary War? Mm, not so much, but a little bit. Okay. Well, go ahead and study up on it, because I think we're going to need some of your uh, history expertise as next week we discuss the episode... Bunker Hill. I don't think it actually has anything to do with that. Absolutely nothing, but yeah. When Deer and Tillin go go in when who? You need to go back and listen to that, because <laughs> that came out exactly the way you said it. <laughs> of course it would. <laughs>